For endless days we will sing his praise. Do you realize what we did this morning was really just practice? It's practice for what's going to come for all of eternity. Worship is not something we do on just on Sunday, but really it's a way of life, and it's in preparation for all of eternity when we spend it with Jesus at his feet, singing his praises and lifting his name together. It's been a joy for me today to be here at Redwood, and I uh, appreciate Pastor Ryan and his hospitality and his friendship. Uh, my name is John Guy, and uh, my wife and I, are, are uh, we have moved just recently to the Tempe, Arizona area to start the City Point Baptist Church. And I had the opportunity in the last hour to share a little bit more about that. And uh, I'll just share briefly here this morning. Uh, we have, uh, we've moved to that area to start this church. And uh, God has really uh, made that very clear to us and laid that on our hearts. Uh, we have moved to the Tempe, Arizona area with three other families who are helping us uh, to launch City Point. And uh, in two weeks, two weeks from today, is our very first preview service. And uh, we're going to be meeting at uh, the uh, Improv, Tempe Improv Comedy Club is going to be our Sunday morning venue each week. We're going to meet there. We're going to gather together just as you're doing this morning in Jesus' name, singing his praise together, gathering with friends, gathering in community, and then opening up the Word of God. And uh, we're going to have four preview services, once in uh, October, November, December, and January. And then on February 10th, we're going to launch into weekly services and to really birth and, and bring to life a brand new church in that area. And so we're excited about sharing Jesus with that community and bringing the gospel to that community. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for your support and your encouragement. Along the way, I would encourage you to take a look at our website, citypointaz.com. You can follow us on social media as well, at citypointaz, and you can keep up with what God is doing and, and uh, how the Lord is leading there. And if you know of anybody in that area, in Tempe and Phoenix and Mesa and Chandler, uh, who doesn't have a church, maybe they don't know the Lord, uh, point them to our website, uh, get us connected together. I'd love to reach out to them and uh, share Christ with them and share share with them what God is doing there at that church and, and what we're excited about, how, how he's leading. This morning we're going to be in Luke 15. So if you have a Bible there, I'd encourage you to open up to that. Luke 15, I love the Gospels. I love the life of Christ. I love studying Jesus and Understanding his ministry, understanding his life, understanding how he interacted with people and how he dealt with people. Because I want to be a reflection of that. I want to live like Jesus. I want to love like Jesus. I want to, I want to follow in his steps. So this morning, we're going to take a survey through Luke 15. And I would encourage you just to keep it open there. We're going to, we're going to be referencing it and really walking right through this text and uh, pulling some things from this text. And I hope that your heart will be stirred and your affections will be encouraged as we look to Jesus and study the life of Christ this morning, Luke 15, I'm going to begin with the first, um, just the first couple of verses here. And as, as we begin into this, I really want you to keep in mind throughout the course of this, of this message, the context of these first two verses and what's happening here. Because there are really two groups of people that Jesus is referencing. And a little bit later in, in the text here, he's going, to, he's going to open up a parable. He's going to open up a story and he's going to begin to give us a glimpse into the heart of God. And the application of that parable and of that story, we begin to understand by the context. Why would Jesus tell this story? What was he trying to communicate? What was he trying to convey? Well, we answer those questions by understanding the context. So let's look at the context of Luke 15 here, verse 1. Then drew near unto him, unto Jesus. By the way, I love that picture of people being drawn to Christ. Jesus 
is attractive. And people are drawn to Christ. And as we lift up Jesus, people will be drawn unto him. But then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners. Now you have to understand, this is group number one. Publicans and sinners. Publicans were tax collectors. They were Jews who were working for the Roman government, taxing the Jews. So you can imagine they weren't really liked. Uh, They didn't really get along with the Jewish people very well because the way that they made their living, the way that they made their income, was by taxing over and above the quota of the Roman government. And so these publicans were known as cheats. As, as scam artists, and they would, they would cheat people and they would tax them more than what was required by the Roman government so that they could then make a living, and then, of course, they wanted to, they wanted to make a living over and above that. One, one of the chief tax collectors in the New Testament is a man by the name of Zacchaeus. Remember him? The wee little man who climbed up in that sycamore tree? Zacchaeus was the chief among publicans, and so he had publicans underneath him. It was the first example of multi-level marketing. And so here was Zacchaeus making his wealth by being a publican, but then he had publicans underneath him who were working for him, and so he was actually getting some of their quota as well. People didn't like Zacchaeus. People didn't like publicans. And then there were sinners. How would you like to be labeled that? Right? Okay, you are in the category of sinners. That's how you are known by the community. You are a sinner. You are a publican. You are, you are marginalized. You are outcast. You are not welcomed in, 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 in the circle of, of the community there in, in Jerusalem. But that's who was drawing near to Jesus. Publicans. Sinners. That's group number one. So then drew near unto him, unto Jesus, all the publicans and sinners, for to hear him. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. Now verse 2, here's the second group. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured. These were the students of the Torah, the students of the law. These were the religious elite of the day. They were murmuring. They weren't just talking amongst themselves. That word murmur has the idea of talking amongst the crowd. They didn't like what they saw in Jesus and what he was doing. And here's what they were saying. This man, Jesus, receiveth sinners and eateth with them. We get a little bit of a glimpse into what was happening. Here's Jesus sitting at a meal, eating with publicans and sinners, outcasts, and the marginalized. Group number one with Jesus. Group number two, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite, the students of the law, they didn't like what they saw in Jesus. They didn't like this scene. They were murmuring. They were complaining. That is the context of Luke 15. Group number one with Jesus sitting and having a meal. By the way, in Jesus' day, to sit down and to have a meal with someone was to identify with them, was to do life with them. That was a big deal because you didn't just sit down and eat and 30 minutes later you left. You spent time there. You got to know them. You, you began finding out about their story, about their life and who they were. And so it was a very intimate setting to sit down and to have a meal with someone. And so here is Jesus spending significant time with really bad people. And the really good 
people, the religious leaders didn't like it. Because that was unclean and that was unacceptable according to their tradition. And so Jesus begins into this parable. The whole purpose of this parable that Jesus is about to teach and speak is to address this setting. Group number one, sitting and eating a meal with Jesus, and group number two, murmuring and complaining about it. That Jesus is spending time with really bad people. Let's have a word of prayer together, and then I want to dive into this text. Father, we love you, and it's our desire this morning to see Jesus, to understand you, to understand your heart for people. Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself from this text, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. It was a common scene in the life of Jesus to be surrounded by publicans and by sinners and by uh, people who were, who were not accepted by society. He spent time by a well with a woman that he was not supposed to spend time with. He spent time uh, with a woman who was taken in adultery and he told her to go and to sin no more. He spent time with men like Zacchaeus. He spent time, like we're seeing in this text, with publicans and sinners and outcasts and marginalized of society. And it was also very much like Jesus to speak into these scenes by telling a story. Jesus was the master teacher. And he was always teaching. He was always telling parables. He was always trying to give a glimpse into the heart of the Father, into the heart of God. And so he begins into this parable. If you look at verse 4 of our text here, we'll look at verse 3. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. Failure is not an option for this shepherd. He is going to pursue this one lost sheep until he finds it. He's actually willing to risk his entire livelihood. The Bible does not indicate that he leaves the ninety and nine with any other caretaker. So he leaves the ninety and nine to go after the one. And he's going to go after the one until he finds the one. Look at verse 5. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders. What a beautiful picture of God and his love toward us. That we could not come back to the fold, but God brought us to the fold by laying us on his shoulders, by bearing the weight of our sin on his own shoulders so that we could be brought back to God. He layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, He calleth together his friends and his neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons, not sheep, but just persons, which need no repentance. It's as if Jesus is beginning to make an application to the context. He's over here with the one lost sheep and he's making an application and he's saying there's more joy in heaven over the one lost that comes home over the 99 just persons, the the righteous person, the one who doesn't need repentance or at least in their own mind, they don't need repentance. There's more joy over the one. Verse 8, he begins into the second part of this parable. Either what woman having 10 pieces of silver. Now we go from 100 to 10. We go from a sheep to a coin. And this silver is not just a base metal. It's not just a lead or an iron. It's it's a precious 
metal. It's a precious silver. What woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? By the way, lighting a candle in the day in which this parable would have been spoken was a very costly thing to do. Oil was precious, and oil was valuable, and oil was costly, but this one silver coin was worth the expense. It was worth the expense for this woman to light the candle and then to to go through her house and no doubt create a bigger mess finding the one coin. But it was worth it. And then she does something very similar to the shepherd. When she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me. By the way, when you find something really valuable, it's hard to keep it to yourself. If you were to win the lottery, I don't think anybody's done that, judging by the statistics, you wouldn't want to keep that to yourself. Now, you might want to keep it to yourself for a while because you're going to get some friends that you never had. And they're going to want to come and partake of the blessing. But I'll tell you, when God does something, when God moves, when God works, when, when God brings someone to himself, when a lost sheep, when a lost coin, when a lost son is brought home, there is rejoicing. And we gather the family, and we gather the community, and we gather the friends, and we say, hey, rejoice with me. What was lost has been found. So the woman, just like the shepherd, gathers those together to rejoice. Then we get to verse 11. And we begin into the third part of this parable. By the way, it's one parable. It's one story. It just has three parts. Jesus is communicating one core truth throughout these three, but he's showing it from a different angle. And don't forget the context. We've got Jesus sitting with publicans and sinners, and we've got Pharisees and scribes who don't like it. So Jesus is telling this story to reveal something about the heart of God. This story is often called the story of the prodigal son, which is accurate. But really, this story is not so much about the son or the sons, as we'll see in a moment. It's really about the father. It's really about the heart of the father. Look at verse 11. Jesus is continuing the story, and he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. He's saying, Dad, I want my inheritance. Now you have to understand, you don't get an inheritance while Dad's still alive. So it is a very disrespectful thing for this son to come to his dad and say, give me everything that's mine at your death. He was saying, Dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. You are as good as dead to me. I want my inheritance, what is rightfully mine upon your death. You no longer exist to me. Give me what is rightfully mine as my inheritance. The Pharisees, in hearing this story, would have cringed to hear the disrespect of a younger son to his father, especially in that culture. So what does the dad do? He divided unto them his living. Them. Who's them? Both sons. That's important to keep in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that a little bit later. But both sons, the younger and the older, both received their inheritance at the same time. Verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. He took his journey into a far country, and there wasted 
his substance. We call this the story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal means wasteful. doesn't say how long it took, but I can guarantee it didn't take very long. He wasted that inheritance. He wasted that substance. And when he had spent all, verse 14, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Now, don't, don't mistake this famine for judgment, because that's what the Pharisees would have done. They would have looked at this famine, and they would have looked at this boy and been listening to this story and said, it serves him right. He should have known better. He should have never disrespected his father. He should have never wasted an inheritance. He deserves that famine. But that famine is not judgment. That famine is grace. That famine is God drawing that boy back to himself and allowing a situation in his life that would cause him to look up and look back toward home and to realize what he had done and to repent of that. So the boy tries to fix his own problem, right? The famine comes and the boy says, okay, I'm going to fix this. And isn't that what we do? The famine comes and God's trying to draw our hearts back to him. And before we turn back to him, we say, God, I can fix this. Let me, let me figure this out. And so that's what he does. He decides that he's going to go join a citizen of that country, the foreign country, verse 15. Again, the Pharisees, the scribes, they would have hated this. They would have cringed at this, that this Jewish boy was serving a foreign master. And not only that, not only is he serving a foreign master, but he's, he's in the fields feeding the swine. Now, if you understand Jewish culture, the Jews stayed away from pigs. It was unclean. But this boy is not, he is immersed in, in, the, in the, the muck and the mire of this swine, feeding them, serving this master of a foreign country. Verse 16, and he fain would have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, what a beautiful phrase. I don't know how long it took. But eventually this boy came to himself. And you know what the first thought he has? Dad. And you know the first attribute he thinks of his father? My dad's good. My dad is kind. And he thinks back to his father. And he says, how many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. He says, even the people who work for my dad, have more than enough to eat. I was his son. But even those who are employed by my father are taken care of and they have more than enough to spare. I'm reminded of how the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And this younger son, this prodigal son, comes to himself and he realizes my dad is a good father. He, he, he is a good master. And even the employees, even the servants there are well taken care of. So he devises a plan and he writes a speech. He says, I will arise. I will go to my father and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And the Pharisees, as they're hearing Jesus tell the story, would have been nodding their head. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. The Pharisees would have been nodding their head. You are not worthy to be reinstated as a son. You have shamed and disgraced the family name. What you have done is just unpardonable. And they would have agreed with the assessment of the son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Verse 20, and he arose. He came to his father. 
when he was yet a great way off. You see, the father was waiting. The father was watching. The father was hoping. The father was longing that as he looked over that hillside, as he looked out to that horizon, that eventually he would see the silhouette of his son coming down that road, coming home again. Because the heart of the Father is always restoration. The heart of the Father is that always the sheep and the coin and the Son would be brought home. And so it wasn't just that the Son made it all the way to the porch and knocked on the door and the Father was there to open the door. The Father was on the front porch waiting and longing and desiring for that Son to come over the hillside to come into that horizon. And when He did, the Father ran. The father ran toward the son in a way that was very uncharacteristic of a Jewish man. It was undignified to run. Men didn't run. But it was a crazy, relentless, reckless love that this father had for his son. And so he ran toward the son and he embraced his son. That must have been an awkward moment for the son. Because he's walking down this long, lonely road toward his father. He's got his little speech tucked away in his pocket there and he's, gonna, he's about to present that to his dad. And he's, he's hurt. He's broken. He's at the end of himself. He realizes that what I've done is wrong. I'm not even worthy to do this. I don't even know what's going to happen. He might turn me away. And as he looks up, there's his dad running full-blown sprint toward him. What's, what's he going to do when he gets here? Is he going to rebuke me? He's going to yell at me. He's going to tell me to go back where I came from. That's what I deserve. That's not what happens. It's an embrace of grace. The father wraps his arms around him, and the son's probably standing there a little awkward, not really sure what to do. He fumbles around, and he reaches into his pocket, if he had a pocket in his little robe there. He pulls on his speech. Verse 21, The son said unto him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But if you compare verse 19 and verse 21, you will find that the son never finishes his speech. His father cuts him off. Because we don't become worthy. We are made worthy. And if we are made worthy, We cannot become unworthy. Our worth was never based on anything that we did. Our worth was never based on what we brought to the Father. Our worth was solely based on what Jesus did in our place. And so we have entered into Jesus' worth in the sight of God. And so now as a son, as a daughter of God, you are worthy. You don't have to earn worth. You don't have to try to re-earn worth. You don't have to try to be reinstated to the family of God because we get to a low point in our life and we begin to look at ourselves, and we begin to hear the voice of the accuser and we begin to feel guilty and we begin to think, I am no longer worthy. God cuts us off. He says, you were never worthy to begin with. That's not why I welcomed you in that's not why I welcomed you home. The only reason I welcomed you home is because Jesus is worthy and you've received Jesus and so now through Jesus you are worthy. And Jesus will never be unworthy, so you will never be unworthy. So the father cuts him off. Don't finish your speech. I'm not going to make you one of my hired servants. You're not a servant. You're my son. 
we have three boys. They tend to break a lot of things. I've become an expert at fixing screen doors and drywall. Our three-year-old decided that he wanted to express his creative ability with a spray paint can on the front of my car. I was tempted in that moment to go to Dylan and say, Dylan, you are no longer worthy to be called my son. Leave and send that three-year-old packing down the street. We don't do that as parents. They didn't, they didn't earn that status as a child. They were born into that status. We didn't earn our status and our standing and our worth with God. We were born into that through Jesus. And so we are a child of God. I love what the Father does here. Verse 22, the Father said to his servant, bring forth the best robe. Not any robe, not even the son's robe. The best robe. Who did the best robe belong to? The Father. Clothe him in my robe. And then he says, go get a ring and put it on his finger. Reinstate him into the family and get shoes and put them on his feet because only servants go barefoot. He's not a servant, he's a son. And go and kill the fatted calf. For this, verse 24, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to be married. What a beautiful picture of God's relentless pursuit of the prodigal. By the way, that's every one of us. He is pursuing us still, desires us still. He came to us because we could never go to him. But the story doesn't end. Because there are, in fact, two sons. Look at verse 25. Now his elder son was in the field. Was in the field. Okay? It doesn't seem so bad. As a matter of fact, some of us might think, man, what a good son. Look at him just doing what he's supposed to do, serving where he's supposed to serve. But I want you to keep in mind the context of this story. Back to verse 1 and 2. Jesus with publicans and sinners, if I could call them this, prodigals. The wayward, the lost, the hopeless, the ones who needed to be found. And then on this side, group number two, are those who had it all put together religiously. Students of the Torah, keepers of the law, they crossed every T, they dotted every I. As a matter of fact, they had laws to help them keep the laws. That's how, that's how lawful they were. They were doing a lot. Now the elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. There was a celebration going on, and he calls one of the servants, and he asks what these things meant. He said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry. He's angry. Why was he angry? Well, he's going to reveal why he was angry a little bit later. And he would not go in. The, son, the older brother would not go into the celebration, because by going into the celebration was the older brother recognizing that his younger brother had come home, and that he was, in fact, still alive and a member of the family. The older brother had written him off. If you want to disgrace us, if you want to disgrace the family, you are not worthy in this home. You are not welcome in this home. He wouldn't go in. 
Verse 29. I'm sorry, look at verse 28. He was angry, he would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. His father comes out and says, would you come in? Would you please come in and welcome your younger brother with me back home? Verse 29, he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. There's the justification for his anger. That's why he was angry. Dad, I've been in the field and I've been serving you. Now, you remember when both sons received their inheritance? This older son received his inheritance. And as the older son, his inheritance would have included the estate. He was the owner. It was all his. But yet he was still working to try to earn something, to try to prove something, to try to demonstrate something. And when the younger brother comes home, he gets mad because dad gives all these good things to the younger son, to his younger brother. And he's been in the field the whole time being a really good son, working really hard, proving, proving beyond any shadow of a doubt that he was worthy of his inheritance. Dad, you never gave me a kid that I may make merry with my friends. Verse 30, but as soon as this, notice this here, as, th- as soon as this, thy son, doesn't even call him his brother, as soon as this, thy son was come, which hath devoured living with harlots, that's not even in the story. But now there's this embellishment. Thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, son, This is beautiful. Thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. You have had had complete access to me, and you have had complete access to my robe, to my ring, to the shoes, to the fatted calf. You could have thrown the celebration whenever you wanted to. All that I have is thine. I have been ever with you. It was meet, it was necessary that we should make merry and be glad. For this, thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. And we get to the end of the chapter, and Jesus leaves it open-ended. We don't know the response. We don't know the response of the publicans and the sinners. We don't know the response of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But Jesus leaves this parable. He leaves this story out there just wide open. What is Jesus teaching us through this story? I believe there are three truths he's emphasizing. Number one, Jesus wants his passion to be our passion. Jesus is passionate about people. Jesus is passionate about the about the uh, the prodigal as much as he's passionate about the Pharisee. Because he entreated that older son to come in. He wanted the older son to come in and celebrate just as much as he wanted the younger son to come home so that they could celebrate. But Jesus is passionate about people. These three stories are all, are all stories of a celebration when the lost is found, when the dead is brought back to life, and, when, and when, when the son is brought home. What a beautiful word, home. Home is a place of belonging. Home is a place of rest. Home is a place where you can be yourself. You don't have to try to prove something or live up to something. You can just rest and be easy because you are home. And Jesus is our home. Jesus is our rest. And he's calling people to come to himself. And what he's saying to the church, which is the expression of himself, the church is the representation, the representation of Jesus. He's saying, let the church, let the body of Christ be home. 
Let it be a place where people can come, where they feel welcome, where they feel like they can be themselves, where they feel like they don't have to prove something to belong. May this church and may this place be a place where people can come and they can feel at home. Sinners and publicans were drawing near to Jesus. They were welcomed by Jesus. They felt comfortable around Jesus. They didn't feel awkward. They didn't feel like Jesus was unattainable or unapproachable. They felt like Jesus was real. And yet at the same time, he was different. And that was compelling. And as Christians, we're real with people. But at the same time, there's something different about us. And it's not us. It's the Spirit of Christ within us that is drawing people to Jesus through us. Jesus wants his passion to be our passion. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Are we a friend of sinners? The people that are close to you in your life, are they all Christians? Or do some of them not know the Lord? Do some of them look maybe a little different, act maybe a little bit different, maybe don't go to church on Sunday? Because that's the crowd that Jesus preferred to hang out with. The publicans and the sinners. And real life transformation takes place in relationship. It takes place in relationship. And so what do we do? We gather together on Sundays. We worship the Lord together. We sing His praises together. We lift His name together. We're encouraged from His word together. And then we go out, we live on mission, and we represent, we represent Jesus to this world. And we live in and amongst the world showing them Christ and speaking to them about Christ. Jesus wants that to be our passion. Don't lose that heartbeat. Don't lose that passion. Number two, Jesus is teaching us and really giving us a warning. He's saying, don't start thinking like a Pharisee. Be careful that the thinking of a Pharisee doesn't start to slip into your mindset. And I'll be honest, when I read this passage and I see the anger of the older son, I begin to empathize. You know what? That makes sense. I think I'd probably be a little upset too. I mean, I'm laboring, I'm working, I'm, I'm doing all the right stuff. I'm, I'm living real clean and upright and I'm not, I'm not wasting stuff and I'm not shaming the family name and I'm, I'm being a real upstanding Christian here, God. And then someone walks in who used to be an upstanding Christian, but they've made some life choices and what do we say? Well, they, they should have known better. As, as if to say, I, I'm in a different place. I'm, I'm on a higher level and they're on a lower level and they should have known better. And, and we, they need to prove themselves first. And sometimes we, we marginalize and we push back against the prodigal when they've come home, when, when the church is supposed, supposed to be a place of welcoming and acceptance and belonging for the lost one who's come home. And if we're not careful, the thinking of a Pharisee can start to creep into our minds. You see, there are two types of sinners. Those who know they are lost and those who think they are righteous. The prodigal knows he's lost. The prodigal knows that he's messed up. The prodigal knows that he's in the mire and that he needs to come home and that, and that he's just hoping that he'll be accepted. And then there's the person who thinks they are righteous. The thing is, they're equal. We are just as lost and we are just as in need of Jesus as the person who's cleaned up their life really good. And we're just as lost and we're just as in need of Jesus as the person who's messed up really bad. But the thinking of a Pharisee will manifest itself in our lives if we're not careful. See, this older son 
was living beneath his privileges. He was a son acting like a servant. He was so busy doing rather than being. He was working for relationship rather than working from relationship. I'm not trying to encourage you to not serve Jesus. <laughs> I'm not trying to encourage you to stop doing things. But what I am encouraging you to do is don't try, stop trying to prove something to God. Stop trying to prove that, you are, that you're going to somehow earn this salvation that God has given to you. And you're going to somehow live a worthy life of that. You and I can never measure up to Jesus. That's why we had to be placed in Christ so that we, his righteousness could be imparted to us. Because we can never be righteous in and of ourselves. But now because of who I am in Christ, I can serve. I can live a life that is a reflection of Jesus. And when I do that, that's true worship. Because now it's from a heart of love and it's from a position of acceptance. But this Pharisee was living beneath his privilege and his dad says to him, what are you doing? I have, I have always been with you and everything I have is already yours. You have complete access to me. Stop acting as if you don't. Too many Christians are afraid to come to God or they, they, they make a mistake and they start to beat themselves up and they start to be guilt-driven. And they're, they're afraid to crawl back to God because they feel like God's not going to accept me and I'm just messed up too bad. God says, you are already worthy. You are already a son or a daughter. You are already accepted. You, you will be embraced when you come back. This older son was allowing bitterness to blind him from reality. This older son didn't understand the love and compassion of his father. It's amazing that he had to ask a servant what all the noise was about. He's out busy slaving away in the field. He hears the music, the dancing, the, the celebration. And he goes to one of the other servants and says, what's all, the, what's all the party about? What's all the ruckus about? What's the celebration about? And the servant has to say, your younger brother has come home. But if that older brother had truly understood the heart of the father and the love and the compassion of the father, he would have heard the music, he would have heard the celebration, and his first response would have been, my younger brother's probably come home. You know what Pharisees have a hard time with? They have a hard time with really bad people being accepted by Jesus. They have a hard time with that. They don't understand that. They can't seem to understand the love of God that would, that would reach into the life of someone that in their estimation is so far gone. But that's who our God is. And that's what Jesus was trying to explain to those Pharisees in that parable. That they were acting just like that older son. So Jesus is reminding us that his passion is people and our passion should be people. Jesus is issuing a warning that we don't start thinking and, and living and acting like that Pharisee. And then thirdly, Jesus is reminding us of this truth, that the Christian life is ultimately about relationship. It's, it's, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. It's not necessarily about keeping a list of do's and don'ts and trying harder. And if you try harder, you'll get more of God. And if, if you have a bad week, you'll have less of God. It's not that. It's relationship. Jesus is approachable. He, he is personable. He is he, he, you, you can be vulnerable and you can be transparent with him. And, and Luke 15 is really all about God's relentless 
pursuit of relationship. And by the way, God wants relationship with the prodigal as much as he wants relationship with the Pharisee. This isn't about God just accepting the prodigal and pushing away the Pharisee. God was inviting the Pharisee to the table. God was saying, will you rejoice with me? Will you come and sit down? Will you rejoice in this prodigal who's come home? Because the father in the story was entreating the son, trying to get the son to come into the house and to celebrate with him. So God is in just as much of a passionate pursuit of the prodigal as he is of the Pharisee. And if we were honest, we've probably found ourselves in both situations. And I've been grateful to God that he has welcomed me back and pursued me in that relationship. The the, the, The overwhelming arc of the story of the Bible is about God's pursuit of man. God created mankind with the need for relationship with him. Sin separated us from that relationship. But through Jesus, we can be brought back to that relationship with God. God is... His heart is to restore and to redeem and to bring people back to himself. So Jesus shares a story of a father and two sons. But really, this is more than a story of a father and two sons. I believe it's a story of a father and three sons. Because there is a third son in this story. And he's the son that you desire to see. He's the son that you desire to hear about. And he's the son that... As you hear of the first son who was a prodigal and wasteful, you long for a son who won't waste the inheritance. You long for a son who will be obedient to the will of the father. And then as you hear of the second son, you long for another type of a son, a son who will not reject the prodigal when he comes home, but a son who will, who will enter into the celebration and rejoice with the father when the prodigal comes home. And then as you read the story and you hear Jesus telling the story, you find that the sir, third son is actually the one telling the story. That Jesus is the son who is not the prodigal. Jesus is the son who was not wasteful but was obedient to the will of the Father and came and died on the cross so that we could be purchased and bought back to the Father. And Jesus is not like the older son because Jesus rejoices and Jesus welcomes uh, the prodigal when he comes home. And Jesus is not the one who is not willing to come into the celebration, but he rejoices and desires that celebration and welcomes it. And I can imagine... In this story, as Jesus is sitting at that table, eating that meal, sharing that story about the prodigal and about the older son, that the publicans and sinners are longing for that third son. And the publicans and sinners are beginning to think and wonder, I wonder if this Jesus who's been speaking to me and eating this meal with me, the one that he's referencing in that story. And you begin to see that the one that the prodigal needs is the third son. And you begin to understand that the one that the Pharisees and the Sadducees need is the third son. It's Jesus. And Jesus will bring the prodigal and the Pharisee back to himself. And welcome them both. And celebrate with them both. And so our hearts long for Jesus. We've taken a survey of Luke 15. God wants his passion to be our passion. God wants to issue a warning that we don't start thinking like a Pharisee and judging and comparing and marginalizing and saying, well, they're not welcome here. They should know better. 
And God wants us to stay in that close relationship with Himself. And He's constantly pursuing us. What do we need this morning? Do we need to come back to Christ in that relationship and realize that He will welcome us home? Do we need to say, Lord, I have, I have been thinking and acting like that Pharisee and I've begun to, to, to look at my rules and regulations and my, my attendance and the things that I, that I do and I start to measure and compare and now I'm starting to see that I'm better than th- and I'm starting to play that game and God's saying, no, no, no. There's, there's not this level of you're better and they're worse, but we are equal and we both need Christ just as much. Or maybe you've slipped away from that relationship and God is pursuing you this morning and desiring for you to come home to Him. It's a beautiful story. And it draws us back to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, we love You. We thank You for Christ. We thank You for who He is, for what He's done for us. We thank You that no matter where we have been, no matter who we are, that we can find rest, we can find our home We can find acceptance and belonging in Jesus. I pray that this would be a church that welcomes. I pray that this would be a church that loves people. I pray that we would be a a people going out into our workplaces and into our communities and to our neighbors this week and simply sharing Jesus with them. And Lord, may we be a reflection of that. And we pray this in your name. Amen. you just bow your head for a moment and reflect on that message as the music continues to play softly there don't run from Christ this morning run to him some of you have children that are prodigals and as I was listening to that message my heart was going out to you Let's continue to pursue them. Let's continue to pray for them. Let's continue to extend grace, acceptance, love.